Hey, everyone. Want to become more productive so you can be a functioning cog in the great machine of capitalism forever clawing after higher GDP? Me too. Today's book is Deep Work by Cal Newport. I'm Kellen Erskine. I'm a comic, a father, and as a comic, this book helped me become more focused on my writing process so I can ignore everything else, making me a worse father. (laughs) And I'm David Vance. Deep work is the term I always use to describe my poetry. Deep work by Cal Newport is chock full of ideas for getting more work done, which is good because all my ideas violate worker protections. And this is The Book Pile. So quick reminder to please rate and review The Book Pile. We really appreciate everyone who's reviewed so far. Uh, Our goal is 200. We're at about 170. And I guess I just want to say it is so easy to make 30 bots. (laughs) (laughs) There is part of a review from Corrijo. Corrijo? But I don't know what it is in Spanish. Is it correct? Corrijo? Uh Uh-huh. I don't know. Let's Google this. I thought you spoke Spanish. I mean, 10 years ago. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, Corregir is correct. So... Corrijo could be I correct. Oh, it's someone who corrects people. Did you leave this review? (laughs) So he says, or she, I listen to this podcast while I'm on the treadmill at the gym. It makes me look like I'm really enjoying my workout. (laughs) We're glad to hear that, Corrijo. Please leave a new review correcting our Spanish. He also says, or she, at the very end, there's sort of a PS that says, interesting trivia for the authors, the word pile in the UK is slang for hemorrhoid. (laughs) No, yeah, that was by design. (laughs) I guess we do record this sitting down. But like flexing your buttocks the whole time? (laughs) Do you not? I mean, I always just sit on one of those donut pillows. (laughs) A donut pillow has got to be the highest ratio of appetizing sounding to actual appetizing. (laughs) I think the opposite of that is uh, kidney beans. (laughs) All right, without further ado, our favorite lessons from deep work. Lesson one, multitasking doesn't work. And this is why I don't drive anymore while I'm in the middle of a great text. (laughs) So the problem is that when you switch from task A to task B, your attention doesn't immediately follow. He says attention isn't like water, it's molasses, where there's still this sort of this attention residue or part of your brain's resources are still like stuck on this last thing, Mm -hmm. especially if it hasn't been completed yet. Yeah, I often tend to think of my attention as being like a steam engine where when I sit down and I work on a task, it can take a little bit for me to get momentum. But as long as once I have the momentum, I stick with the thing, I can make a ton of progress. But if I'm only working in like 10, 20 minute increments, and it's like I get a little bit of momentum this way, and then I switch to something else, and I have to shift my momentum back the other way. It's like my forward progress is limited totally. And I've seen when Dave concentrates really hard, he goes, choo-choo. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's how I do self-pep talk, <laughs> mostly while eating. <laughs> <laughs> so a uh, business professor uh, out of the University of Minnesota, Professor Sophie Leroy, she did this experiment where she had two groups working on word puzzles. With the first group, she interrupted them halfway through their progress to give them a new task of reading resumes and making hypothetical hiring decisions. And with the second group, they got to complete their word puzzles before moving on. And she found that that group that completed the first task, they made significantly better hiring choices. 
hmm. than the first group. I want to know how many times has this happened in the actual hiring process, you hmm. know? That you're you're distracted, you're thinking about something else, so you don't make a very good hiring decision. I never did well in interviews, so that's why. I've always been looking for a reason why. And oh, I think sure. <laughs> that all these people just needed to read this book, and then... I would have snagged that job at Nordstrom Rack when I was 21. <laughs> I think multiple studies show that the accuracy of almost all hiring methods in terms of being able to predict who will perform well at the job is quite low, even in the best methods. But we I have, believe it. We have this illusion of certainty. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure you do. <laughs> there are so many arbitrary things that go into these sorts of decisions. I remember reading that study about how they looked at judges who were granting parole or not granting parole, and they found that if the parolee appeared before them before lunch, they were much less likely to grant it when they were hungry. And then <laughs> after they had just eaten, they were much more likely to grant parole. And so it's this like crazy, cruel, capricious quirk of the justice system that's determined by these totally random factors. <laughs> And now I didn't hear the last part of what you said because of that polysyllabic tongue twist you came up with in the middle of all that. Oh, yeah. I wrote that down ahead of time in case I had a chance to use it. <laughs> so how does that apply to us? When you go from focusing on one thing to even just like a quick text check, especially with something you can't deal with in the moment, now you have to return to your primary task with a secondary task left unfinished in your brain. You're dividing your brain's resources. Mm. Uh, the BBC did a show called The Secret Life of Office Buildings. <laughs> which Riveting. <laughs> it sounds... It's like Toy Story, and once all the, the employees leave at night, the, <laughs> the buildings is like, alive. play around. <laughs> One of the takeaways from this show was that in an open office environment, even when you don't think something is distracting you, if you hear a phone ringing in the distance, your brain still responds to it, even though you're focusing on something else. Mm. Now your your resources are unconsciously being depleted just because of the nature of your environment. So Dave, you've worked in it like an open office environment. What do you feel are like the pros and cons of, of working there? Yeah, so the ad agency I work at has one, and the building is just beautiful. But at any moment, someone can decide, like, hey, I'm going to distract all 15 of these other people in the room. <laughs> like, at the drop, like, an, an open office plan is like in the Last Supper painting if someone was trying to get some work done. <laughs> So one sort of extreme method that the author Peter Shankman uses uh, to, to be able to focus just on one thing at a time. Rather than focusing on his name. <laughs> Shankman, yeah, if he ever went to prison. <laughs> that, if you are in prison and a guy named Shankman walks up to you, that is definitely an undercover cop. <laughs> yeah, it's just a guy. Hey guys, it's me, Shankman, who we shankin today. <laughs> yeah, it's just trying to fit in, trying <laughs> to be intimidating. That's a great idea, actually. Check out my skin tattoo. If you, <laughs> Yeah, it's a Chinese symbol that means scary. <laughs> <laughs> like, if you ever, if you're going to prison, just like legally change your name to something <laughs> that sounds like uh, Mr. Secret Knife. <laughs> I met a juggler, called himself like a rock and roll juggler on, on the <laughs> cruise ship. It was his what way, does that mean? I think it was his way of like trying to 
you know, erase the stigma that jugglers have. <laughs> it's like he chose his career from a Mad Lib and was like, dang it. <laughs> <laughs> it looked like he dressed the, like uh, like he shopped at Hot Topic, okay. like eyeliner. and But he was also like wildly addicted to drugs. And he said <laughs> that one time when he was in the Caribbean, he said that like a, a, a drug deal, it went bad and he was running back to the cruise ship. And at one point, he was surrounded by three guys. And he said the way he got out of it was that he said, I know I'm not big, but I bite. (laughs) And he gave me this advice, which is not flattering because he was basically saying, look, I know you can't handle. I thought this story was going to end with him being surrounded and then juggling. (laughs) Imagine how confused you'd be as an assailant. You have this guy cornered and he starts juggling and you're confused because... You know, you're thrown by why he's not panicking. Like he knows something you don't. And then a little Zeppelin starts playing. (laughs) You go to beat up a guy, but all of a sudden he's like throwing around apple, a rubber chicken and a bowling ball. And you're like, hold on. I'm not quite sure I see how this is going to end. Or maybe he just took a bite out of the apple. Maybe he'd go the opposite way where you corner him. He pulls out knives and you're like, oh, crap. And he starts juggling him. You're like, oh, okay. I'm not going to rob this guy now. We just get like what he made in tips today. (laughs) If I were a juggler and I got cornered by gangsters, I'd be embarrassed I didn't have my chainsaw with me. (laughs) (laughs) I love that that most of this book is about avoiding distractions. And that's all we're doing right now (laughs) is being distracted. So, Peter Shankman, that's where this started. Ah. <laughs> the author, Peter Shankman, is admittedly ADHD. But what he'll do, he'll buy an international round-trip flight. And that's where he does his writing. Mm. He says at one time he had a deadline where he needed to finish a manuscript in two weeks. And so, he took a 15-hour flight to Tokyo, ate in the airport, and got right back on a plane. Wow. And he said, I like how the takeaway from his and J.K. Rowling's story is, to be productive, be rich. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Also, nothing helps me write better like my ears popping, being surrounded by strangers who take my armrests as I slowly kill the planet. <laughs> <laughs> so my writing the story, it's kind of similar to Shankman and J.K. Rowling. I write in a laundromat. And it's, <laughs> no, no, Dave, it's Similarly a very expensive high-end. one. <laughs> they, have, they have big washing machines. They have a vending machine with Gatorade. Like, it's, this isn't your typical laundromat. <laughs> sure. Every laundromat I've been to really helps me focus on the question, is someone going to steal my stuff? <laughs> this is a decent one. But it is like, it it was a reaction to the pandemic because I used to go to the library or uh, Starbucks to write. But since those shut down, this is one place that was still, you know, open to the public because libraries Mm. aren't essential, but clean clothes are. Um, Well, there's no audio version of clean clothes. (laughs) (laughs) Unless you just go out naked and narrate your outfit. (laughs) Okay, red tie, pleated pants. 
But it's actually really nice because it's very clean and there's always just this white noise happening. But I also feel accountable because there are people walking by. For some reason, I feel accountable that I shouldn't be on YouTube or Netflix. Like these people need to know that I'm, I mean, business, you know. (laughs) So I have like a new 45 minutes of stand-up that's about laundromats. (laughs) (laughs) No, but I, I'm going to keep writing there even when everything opens back up. Like, I'll probably still keep going back because the environment, you know, helps. So, the takeaway here is doing one thing at a time means not even glancing at a secondary thing. Don't split your mental resources. All right, lesson two. Cut out distractions. So, so much of this book is just about, you know, how do you cut out distractions so you can actually get work done? My favorite example in the book is Victor Hugo. When he was writing The Hunchback of Notre Dame, he was way behind because he kept getting distracted. So for six months, he put all his clothes in storage so he had nothing to wear out of the house and it forced him to write. And now it's a book about a guy who lives in a tower and can't see his friends. (laughs) So for me, the main takeaway is when you're distracted or when you're switching tasks, the thing you're working on takes way longer. You go way slower compared to if you just like give direct focus to the thing and work till it's done. And I think that's true with any job. So Kellen, I want to know, you know, what's your process for getting rid of distractions? Well, I write in a laundromat. (laughs) (laughs) Do you have like an affiliate deal with this laundromat? (laughs) No, it is funny. Like I've washed things we never washed before in our house because every other day I'm like, can I do like I'm taking clothes out of my kids' dressers just to (laughs) take them to the laundromat. I wash the sheets like twice a week. I wash blankets Maybe stuff. It sounds like if this were a sitcom, you definitely have a crush on an employee at the laundromat. (laughs) And then you'd get into some wacky hijinks where you bring like underwear that looks like it has poop on it. (laughs) And then things would go well with her and then we'd never see her in another future episode. (laughs) And she secretly liked me the whole time, but she didn't know what to say either. (laughs) But if if I'm at home, then I'll usually, um, I put in nature sounds. While I'm working, while I'm writing. But I found that I'm sort of like a nature sound connoisseur at this point. Because I, and you can look this up on YouTube, I realized that nature sounds, like if you're listening to jungle sounds, birds are super distracting. (laughs) And so if you look on YouTube, I just, just to see if I could be more specific, I put in nature sounds, no birds. And there's like a hundred videos like other like-minded people that are like, finally, they got rid of all the birds. <laughs> I like to think that bird sounds are distracting because the ancient mammal in us hears the ancient dinosaur in them and is like, oh. <laughs> That's the T-Rex's posterity. Um, a lot of the nighttime sounds ones are just like, it'll show stars and it just plays music for like 10 hours so that people can go to sleep to it. Mm-hmm. I would love to make one that's that, um, just sort of the soothing meditation spa music. But then at hour five, exactly, is just a man screaming. <laughs> <laughs> as much as I hate comment culture, the one place it's safe to go is nighttime sounds comments. Hmm. Because everyone is just like, hey, we're all in this together. <laughs> like, there's no one that's like, nah, it doesn't sound like night to me. 
So that's uh, that's what I do. I'll listen to nighttime sounds and I'll exit all of my windows except for one. Mm. And it's a BuzzFeed. <laughs> so for me to get anything done, and this isn't a joke, this is literally true, I have to act like I'm a drug addict and my drug is distraction. Because from a dopamine sense, I think we are kind of all a little addicted to distraction. So here's what I have to do when I work. I put my phone in another room. I lock myself off the internet with an app called Freedom. I close all my messaging apps, all my music apps. I unplug my piano. Um, with social media, I only ever use it in incognito mode, so I have to log in every single time. So I do all of those things, and then I barely get something done. And like you said, I also try to avoid open office plans because I never get anything done in an o- open office. When you go to the the checkout screen for the Freedom app, does it say Freedom isn't free? <laughs> What is it? It is is it like a subscription service? Yeah. So basically, you turn it on. So I, I schedule freedom. So there's ten minutes an hour where I'm allowed to get on the internet if I'm in work time. And if I try to get online, a screen will pop up that says you are free from this site. Oh, that's a really nice passive aggressive way of saying that you're <laughs> blocked. It's like your parent being like, "You are free from this food." Yeah, that's like that's like telling prisoners, "You are free from ever being employable again." <laughs> All right, lesson three: practice being bored. So the ability to focus is a skill that can be improved. Uh, I like that he says in the book: "To simply wait and be bored has become a novel experience." in modern life. And this is true, like going to any grocery store, the line to the cashier, or any doctor's office, the waiting in the waiting room, every patient is either on their phone or rescheduling a visit because their phone died. Like <laughs> you just won't. Like I knew someone who she could only listen to 30 seconds of a song. What? Yeah. I wonder if she does that in other parts of her life. Like when she eats, does she just eat part of the plate and throw the rest in the toilet? She's like, I know where this is going. <laughs> in the book Timeline, uh, there's a guy who has created basically this quantum machine that allows you to go. It's a time machine, but it's, <laughs> <laughs> it has to do with quantum physics. I love that if you say quantum machine, we'll just like take you at your word on whatever this machine can do. <laughs> Michael, Michael Crichton, it's just like Jurassic Park where you're just like, yeah, why aren't we making dinosaurs? He's telling us how to do it right here. Like it's so... No, no, forget cancer. Put that down. (laughs) Science, okay. Hey, science, huddle up here. (laughs) What if we create cancer-eating dinosaurs? Hear me out. We can kill two birds. Technically, those dinosaurs do eat cancer. (laughs) I guess so, along with everything else. Um, So this is from Timeline. Uh, In the book, the guy who creates this quantum machine that takes you back in time, his purpose for creating this machine is he wants to commercialize it so that, you know, people can pay to go back in time. So it's not for, like, scientific purposes. It's strictly for entertainment. And his pitch to the invest in the middle of this pitch with the the investors, um, he talks about how this is the first time in history where we have felt entitled to be entertained because before now, we have had to spend most of our time just trying to survive. He says, quote, the great fear is not of disease or death, but of boredom. In other centuries, human beings wanted to be saved or improved or freed, but in our century, they want to be entertained. Gladiator would certainly hit different if he's like, are you not improved? (laughs) Are you not survived? (laughs) 
<laughs> so this is what I tell my like my kids don't even say this anymore. My kids don't say I'm bored. They haven't said it. For, I can't even remember the last time because whenever one of them did, I'm always like, "Good, like that's." <laughs> Great. Like, there should never be this sense of, like, boredom is wrong. Mm. Like, it it is not. And in the book, uh, Cal Newport talks about how we should in- embrace these moments of boredom because the ability to focus is like a muscle in your brain. And the, the more that you practice doing it, the more that you will be able to do it when you do sit down mm. and try and focus on a project. So, he brings up an example of like the next time that you are in line at the grocery store and your hand goes for your pocket don't this like this entitled sense of deserved entertainment is like the kryptonite of focus and so give yourself the embrace these opportunities where you want to look at your phone and in that moment i promise you you immediately <laughs> become judgmental of everyone else <laughs> that's what i have found like look at all these people on their phones like up until i read this book i was one of them and the moment i switched i was like these idiots look at these look at these zombies i think probably the reason most social media fasts don't last is that you feel so superior that you want to post about it <laughs> And so, just to cap this off, so David Brooks says, great creative minds think like artists, but work like accountants. And then I have a, <laughs> but it really is to me just this, uh, the principle of like, of just clocking in, you know, and putting in the hours. But it, it's more than that. We've talked about the principle before that the more hours you put in, the higher your chances of good ideas coming out. Yeah. But it's also that in this period of time of deep focus, your cognitive ability increases. And so mm. that's why it's so important to not check that, you know, your phone every 10 minutes, because then you are slowing down that steam engine. Sure. And the, the, the quality of your work will improve during this, if you, you know, if you're working for two hours with no distractions, uh, it's likely that these better ideas will come later on in this session. So the takeaway here is that you can get better at focusing by accepting boredom. Speaking of boredom, there's this great quote from, I think it was Henry Kissinger, where he said, the great thing about being famous is that when you bore people, they think it's their fault. (laughs) (laughs) And then the other thing, lately, I I don't remember where I got this trick, but I remember someone who said that anytime they're in a conversation and they find the other person boring, they start focusing in a very fascinated way on why they find that person boring. And all of a sudden, they're not bored anymore because they're so curious about what is it about this person that is such drudgery? <laughs> I'm going to remember that the next time that like I'm monologuing for way too long. <laughs> and then all of a sudden you seem even more interested <laughs> than before. I get a really curious expression. The thought bubbles of why <laughs> is he so... What makes him this way? Okay, I have something I'm a little ashamed about. There was someone in my life probably like... Who I killed. <laughs> yeah. All right, let's get that out of the way. You're like, whew, that felt good. <laughs> no, there was someone who, in my life, they were just incredibly, incredibly boring. They talked really slowly, and I had to see them a lot. And they were also, like, slightly judgmental. So he would start these sentences and talk 
like this. And I knew that by the time he got to the end of the sentence, it would not be something interesting. But I was like held like a prisoner within that sentence. And then I always felt like he was slightly judging me about a lot of things. Like he felt like he was a better person than me. He's the only person who I ever hated, even though he did nothing mean to me. And there was, (laughs) I stopped seeing him. I stopped seeing him and I was like, oh man, I've been really mean to this person. I really should have been nicer to him. And then I randomly bumped into him and two sentences in, I was like, oh, I I still hate him. (laughs) (laughs) How great would it be to just have a moment of honesty with those people? Like, I'm going to stop you right there. It's not your fault, but I hate you. (laughs) You are so boring and judgmental that I hate you. (laughs) Continue. (laughs) Okay, lesson four, change your motivation. So when J.K. Rowling had a very tight deadline for Harry Potter, I think it was for the last book, she would check into this expensive hotel just to write. And because she was spending all this money, she felt this big pressure to write successfully during that time, which I I sometimes feel like married couples try to make it work because the wedding cost (laughs) $30,000. So for me, the the takeaway is, you know, can you find a way to raise the stakes on whatever you're working on so that you'll be motivated? So for me, one great tool is just a deadline. So I'm I'm co-writing a movie with my friend Natalie, who was on an earlier episode, and the deadlines force me to write because I don't want to have to tell Nat that I didn't pull my weight this week. I think you could tell on the episode, she's really mean. <laughs> she No, she's very nice, which kind of sucks worse. But Kellen, I, I think you raised the stakes for yourself by having three kids. Is there anything else you do <laughs> to like raise the stakes for your work so that you actually like push on something? Yeah, my the next step is going to be um, having a mortgage <laughs> just to spice things uh-huh. up. Yeah, stand up stand up is such a good because I need deadlines and saying it is one thing, but a self imposed deadline is also difficult, like when you're Mm. only accountable to yourself. So stand-up is really good for me because there's this automatic deadline where, well, ready or not, I have to talk to these people now. Uh Like I have to, I know that I've accomplished a lot more because of that frightening aspect of stand-up comedy. Another thing I use that's very helpful with deadlines is it's called stick.com, S-T-I-C-K-K. And it's the site where you can set a goal and you can put money on the line if you don't reach your goal. So it adds this whole new like level of incentive. You can either have it give to a charity or to an anti-charity, meaning like a cause you don't believe in. I've never heard the term anti-charity. I think of it as like second harvest food repo, where they go to poor people and take their canned <laughs> goods. Okay, lesson five, reduce your shallow work. So this is a really short one. The basic idea is if you want to do important things, it helps to get rid of the unimportant things. So the psychologist Amos Tversky would famously just not open a ton of his mail. And he had this saying where he said, the funny thing about urgent things is if you wait long enough, they stop being urgent. (laughs) I think my favorite framework for the urgency thing is it comes from James Clear, and I don't remember it word for word, but he essentially said... If something is easy to reverse, go ahead and make early mistakes and don't worry. If something is difficult to reverse, be very careful. So in that sense, like, death is difficult to reverse. Salvaging a relationship is difficult to reverse. Are you listening, Steve Jobs? (laughs) That seemed very pointed. (laughs) (laughs) All right, random facts. So there's a quote I love. He quotes the Quarrymen's Creed from the Middle Ages, 
that says, we who cut mere stones must always be envisioning cathedrals. And I think that is beautiful. I also like to imagine that there was a nobleman who ordered some cobblestone, but he's pissed because every stone looks like a little cathedral. (laughs) He's like, oh, man, (laughs) this is not what this means. (laughs) And all the quarrymen are like, do you like it? Another one, two other great books on this topic, if you enjoy Deep Work or the stuff it covers here, are The Willpower Instinct by Kelly McGonigal and Peak, which we already covered by Anders Ericsson and Robert Poole. So, fun fact about the author, his name Cal Newport is short for California New Portland. (laughs) (laughs) No, I didn't, I didn't, I don't have any random facts. (laughs) Okay, one last one. So to kind of launch into his main premises at the beginning of the book, he's basically like, look, jobs are being outsourced, jobs are being automated, wealth inequality is increasing, more money is going to the very rich, and here's how you can be one of them. <laughs> I just love I just love that he read about wealth inequality and was like, ooh, how do I get in on that? <laughs> <laughs> Who is he, Dale Carnegie? <laughs> All right, to recap, our favorite lessons from deep work. One, multitasking doesn't work. Two, cut out distractions. Three, practice being bored. Four, change your motivation. Five, reduce your shallow work. And six, nighttime sounds. (laughs) 